2: Slings and Arrows is a show airing 20 years ago. We love it, so we're carrying the torch, and we'll fill up countless stages with all men's seven ages. No need to get the Shakespeare, it's only bloody Shakespeare. So, welcome to Outrageous Fortune. Welcome to Outrageous Fortune. Susan Coyne is a writer and actor. Along with Bob Martin and Mark McKinney, she was one of the co-creators and writers of Slings and Arrows, where she also played the role of Associate Administrative Director Anna Conroy. Her plays include Kingfisher Days, Alice's Affair, and an adaptation of Three Sisters. And her TV writing credits include Mozart in the Jungle and the upcoming Daisy Jones and the Six. She is one of the co-founders of Toronto's Soul Pepper Theatre, where she has also performed and in 2017 was appointed a member of the Order of Canada for her contributions to Canadian
0: theatre, film, and television. Can we start at the beginning? Can we um, ask you how... We know that you have a really storied career about working in Canadian theatre, so I was kind of wondering if when you were doing that as an actor, if you were getting flashes or kind of seeing things and going, oh, this is a show, um, if you were, like, collecting stories along the way. Well... I guess yes and no, because I think every actor
1: collects stories. I mean, you get a group of actors together, and that's what they do is tell stories. Uh, I had been working in theatre for a while, and I just became fascinated by the sort of way that we can have two different minds when we're acting, the minute before you walk on stage and the minute after you walk on stage, and how you can watch yourself going back and forth. I don't know, something about the process of being an actor, because in life, I'm an introvert, I'm not particularly actorly, but I have this other part of me that is an actor, and suddenly comes to life when I step on stage, so there's something about the process of acting, and I've never seen it well presented, it's usually sort of trivialized, or made, uh, and there's lots to make fun of, but that's all you ever get, you never get the kind of process, and the intricacy of, and and the, the weirdness of it, let's say. So I was always really interested in it, but I couldn't have imagined making it into a series until somebody approached me and said, do you want to do a show about a place like Stratford? And I suddenly went, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to do. And I'd never writ- really written anything before. So it was all kind of a bit of a throw yourself off the cliff kind of situation. But I could see that it, I could see that I would really like doing it, and I could see that it could be really fun to get all our friends together (laughs) and do it as well, (laughs) so that's kind of how it started, and I'll say, too, that uh, anybody who works in theater, um, especially now I've been in it a while, you always have these kind of what-ifs, and I had worked at Stratford, and I'd done a lot of classical theatre, and I loved doing it, but I was now at a time where I had kids, and I was having to think about other things. And so um, we were starting a theatre company. I, I, I thought, this is a great way to sort of get back into that world that I can't access all the time. You know, nobody, I don't have to wait for someone to give me a job. You right. know? It's that thing that I think a lot of people get into writing because... It's tiring waiting by the phone.
0: yeah, Big time. Um, and we saw that the first version was a half hour? Yes. Um, and so how did it kind of transform and Bob and Mark come on board? Well,
1: the um, producers had the brilliant idea. <laughs> at, at the time, I was like, really? Of putting me together with Mark McKinney, who was mo- mainly known as um, for uh, Kids in the Hall, a sketch comedy. And I thought, oh, okay, let's try it. And Mark had the brilliant insight that it would be better as an hour, that especially comedy at that time was pretty light. And that if we really... So if we really wanted to tackle the themes that we thought were exciting, it would work better in an hour. So I I wouldn't have had that insight. So Mm -hmm. that's the first brilliant thing that he suggested. (laughs) (laughs) How, How...
2: Okay, so how exactly did you all meet, like you and Bob and, and Mark? How did that all come together?
1: It was all put together by a producer, Nee Fitchman, who had really a brilliant insight into who would work well together. And I don't think we would have figured that out on our own. He, he, he knew that this would be a good trio and that we would have chemistry together, which is so important when you're writing with people. I've yeah. now learned it's really it's hard to explain if somebody doesn't find the same things funny or the yeah. same things touching. Or so it turned out that his instincts were really great, and we had um, we had we we cared about the same things. Yeah, which meant we fought about the same things <laughs> quite often. But it it ended up uh, it ended up being a great combination.
2: It's because it is when you're writing partners. It's kind of like a little bit like a marriage, you know. Like you, you spend so much time together, and like you said, like you have to um, learn how to fight well. Yes,
1: totally, <laughs> totally. And you have to learn to let go and respect what other people do. And this, so this was exactly like kind of an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it 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 was. Uh, it's been one of the great. Uh, Writing experiences, creative collaborations that I've that I've experienced in my life. So, how how
2: long before um, the show started to get filmed? Did you all come together? Like, how long did it take you to begin to write it? We were also really interested in like in the writing of it. That did you outline it? Like, how how did you all begin?
1: It took quite a while to get the first series made. I mean, for anyone who's trying to get a series made, it took years. Um, And 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 that's kind of worked out well because the stars finally are. We had it with a a network that probably wasn't going to be the right network for it. They dropped it, and then we we put it together. Neve again put it together at the very last minute with uh, with cable companies, which were very kind of new on the scene, especially in Canada, and they were all in and. And then it, then it moved quite quickly. But um, it was fortuitous in the end that it all, you know, we found the people who were going to give it the kind of backing it needed. Mm-hmm. But it was quite a few years. I began to think that this was just a hobby we were doing. I was wondering <laughs> if that was the case yeah. and, like, how
0: yeah. you yeah. got through that and I- if you had a sense that it would kind of see the light of day.
1: Because I think it was five years from the time that I first started writing an outline for it and then a p- writing a pitch for it and then two five years later that we were actually on set filming or we yeah that sounds right yeah actually it was yeah and then the next two series came quite quickly after that and yes we sat around I mean our process is not one you can kind of write in a book this there's, there's a lot of we wrote in my writer the writer's rooms in my house uh, with kids and dogs and <laughs> uh and somehow me always making the sandwiches. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, like, we were Such an Anna thing. Yes, totally, <laughs> totally. And we would talk about, we would, and we were all going, as it happened, through major changes in our lives. And we would sort of talk for, about our lives for two or three hours. And I would, I think it was me. I'm going to say it was me. I said, guys, we should write something down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe the, or like clumsily. So, speaking of which, maybe that would be a good idea for the. <laughs> anyway. uh, they'll probably have different versions, but that's my version. I'm sticking to it. Um, but it was a lot of kind of mining, in in a way that wasn't like wasn't um, wasn't well, we weren't deliberately doing it. But somehow that all infused yeah. the stories we were telling because it was all about yearning and about the things that we can never make right and. It was, you know, and the things that are glorious when they happen and, you know, luck and all kinds of things that seem to be what were preoccupying us at the time. So you can't, you know, there's no kind of necessarily biographical details, but there are a lot of things from our personal lives in there. Um, And I think in the end, because we are, all three of us, inclined to laugh at ourselves, it, it, it ends up being a bit of both the sort of heartache and the humor and the self-deprecating part of being an artist and a human being
0: yeah. yeah yeah i always think well i have this big belief that in order to make things sadder you actually make them funnier and in order to make things funnier you make them more tragic and that that balance and how they play off of each other um and i i think that helps me in my real life too because i when i'm going through something sad i'm like oh there's something funny in this there's a funny way to look at this it's very check off it is very check off <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um okay so then you all write it and then you um found the right network and then we had watched uh, an interview with you all where um the amount of money that you had Mm. right uh uh-huh and so I'm really interested I'm interested in the creativity that comes out of having all of a sudden like you have to be scrappy or then you thought you were going to have to be about things. Um, and did that change some of the the things that you wrote? Um, I remember in the interview we watched that you all talked about like the, <laughs> the gift shop was yeah. meant to be bigger <laughs> and then it was just like a cabinet, you know, um, it, things like that. But also because the, like to Jess's point earlier, it ended up being longer, uh, a longer piece than 30 minutes too, like that is technically can be more expensive as mm-hmm. well. So I'm just curious, like, what mm-hmm. things you might have had to change or that came out differently.
1: Well, it's funny. Now I've worked in, you know, at networks where they have money. It's very different. Uh, it's like, okay, let's make that happen. I'm like, what did you just say? <laughs> uh, so, but I don't think money makes things better. I mean, no. we would have, it we, we would have been nice to have, the money that we originally thought we had. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but I think we, our budget was cut by 25% or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to say, though, you know, we all come from theatre, so it's actually quite quite common <laughs> to have to mm-hmm. scramble to make things happen or make them happen differently or try to find a creative solution. So um, in a way... It's not something we're not used to, especially I have to say, in Canadian theater or in television. So, um, so we just made it happen. I mean, the theater. uh, Somebody said, you know, the theater company didn't probably didn't have the size or scope of didn't seem to have the size or scope of a place like uh, Stratford, which was fine. It just had its own, you know, it had. But I hear from people around the world who say it's just like our company. (laughs) Yeah, somehow. It doesn't. Those things that you think are crucial don't matter in the end. As long as you're telling the story correctly and and uh, getting those details right and casting it the way we cast it. So.
2: I, I'm you know I'm I'm the American mm-hmm. here, right? And so I um, I've never been to Stratford. So in my like I watch it and I'm just I think it's huge. Yeah, <laughs> oh, <there laughs> you, you know go. I'm like yeah. oh that's a big yeah. you know and. Um, Oh, man, the logistics of trying to like please people and all of that, and and absolutely, it 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 speaks to people no matter where they live. If they're theater makers, if they're art makers, period. You know, the show is just so universal in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, to your point, it just it didn't matter.
1: Well, <laughs> and to speak about the Stratford part of it, um, I was the only one who had worked at Stratford, and. So I had sort of some knowledge of the place, but uh, it, it sort of, as as happens when you write about your own life, it became something that's not really Stratford yeah, at right. all, mm-hmm. You know, and, and we've always kind of wanted to make that clear as well, and it's not in any way meant to be some kind of takedown of Stratford. Right. It's actually kind of very celebratory. Um, but for a while we were always saying, it's not Stratford. <laughs> <laughs> But there aren't very many Shakespeare festivals in Canada. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: do you have? Do you want to ask another one? Yeah. Um. I guess I'm starting to think maybe this is moving too far in a different direction. But mm. um, I'm wondering about like the conception of the character of Anna, mm. and mm-hmm. where you started with her, uh, thinking how she would function in the show and how you, if she was written for you, and if you well, always knew you would play her.
1: No, I didn't know I was going to play her. First, um, she comes out of <clears> – <throat> this does come out of a kind of Stratford experience because any theatre company, you know, it's it, it's not really telling tales to say that by October everybody is sick of the place, <laughs> and, you know, and they're sick of their work and they're sick of their colleagues' work and all you do is complain and it's like – <laughs> uh, and you – are always sort of bitching, you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, "Did you did you see the opening? Mm-hmm. What'd you think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that stuff. You lose t- you lose sight. You get sort of in your own world. Mm-hmm. And there's always, and I've had this experience in every theater I've worked in. Really, there's always somebody in the office who's like, "Did you see it? Wasn't it oh. amazing? I loved it. I've never seen him do that work. But, you know, they're just true believers. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they make you feel a bit embarrassed about your bitchiness because. Mm-hmm they see the best in everything and they keep those places running in ways that we don't really acknowledge when we're artists. And we don't even acknowledge, you know, we're like, oh, the money people. And we always wanted to write it in a way that the backstage and administration were as important to the running of the theatre as the actors were, because that's the reality. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of drama in those (laughs) offices as well. And the struggle to raise money uh, to keep a theater afloat, to get customer bums and seats. It's real. It's real. And we take it for granted a lot, I think, as artists. So, uh, so that sort of combination of art and commerce, and then this sort of pure soul in the middle who, who's been there since the beginning, who, you know, who keeps all the secrets, and who's quietly making sure things don't go off the rails that that we wanted to create a character like that to Mm -hmm. pay tribute to people that I've met who are doing that so and at some point I just thought I really want to play this character I don't know (laughs) I don't even remember the moment that I thought that's the character I (laughs) want to play
2: we we were also talking about how you know that that type of person is also creative Mm -hmm. but how people don't don't view that person as such because it takes a lot of creativity to do all of the troubleshooting also to manage all of the personalities
1: yeah. <laughs> huge huge people skills yes. Yeah, <laughs> and their job is kind of to be invisible in a way no completely true yeah. mm-hmm. and i they, think and that, they see trouble coming before anyone else does yeah. they're the watchmen yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and i think that the show is so um warm and and does show the incredible abilities of those characters. I mean, I in watching this time, this last time uh, when Richard goes to see Mama Mia and kind of is like this is what we want to <laughs> be doing. I was right there with him. Yeah. I was like I know. I was in a class once where we had to dissect musicals and people had to bring in like how do they start and how do they end? So someone said like Mama Mia ends with You know, marriage, and they were kind of flipping about it, and the teacher was like, a Mamma Mia ends with a thousand people standing in their seats and cheering and (laughs) dancing. Like, (laughs) the end of Mamma Mia is the beginning of the rest of your life. You know, it's so joyful, and um, I thought it was, there's such a warm spirit of all kinds of theater and all kinds of people, and all of the different people it takes to raise something like a show, which if you've ever done a show, you know it's a miracle that anything happens. It's a miracle that a terrible show happens. It's a mm-hmm. miracle that anyone has a costume at all. <laughs> um, and I just think that that comes through so clearly in all of the characters, but Anna feels like the s- single biggest embodiment mm-hmm. of that. Our yeah,
1: our director, uh, Peter, uh, oh my God, suddenly his name just got out of my head. Wellington? Wellington, thank mm-hmm. you. You're welcome. Um, he ha- was, he's by no means not a theater going and his wife's an actor, but but I think Shakespeare was... That world was somewhat new to him. And he was saying... And he's really wonderfully candid. He said, Are we in danger of making that argument too strong that musicals are much oh. <laughs> easier than Shakespeare? And I was like, yeah, I think that's the challenge we've set to ourselves, especially in the third season. is like, that musical looks wildly entertaining. Can Lear be also entertaining? Yeah. So... Uh, but, uh, again so easy to sort of make fun of musicals of course but um we all love musicals as well so so it's that how uh, uh, why did they have to be in competition basically yeah that's the idea i think
0: did you ever experience um pushback from anyone about trying to do something about shakespeare And, and were you ever told it was too niche or something that people wouldn't understand
1: no by the time people bought the show we had probably three scripts, I think, by then. So they knew what they were getting, and I think that was more our concern, that was it going to be too insidery, And so we really, we really tried to think about how people could have enough context to enjoy it, even though they might never have read a Shakespeare play or seen a Shakespeare play, even gone to the theatre... But then we were watching shows like West Wing and going, I don't know what these people are talking about, but if the dairy subsidy matters to them, it <laughs> matters to me. So yeah. I think that was kind of an education in terms of if you or any kind of medical show, if you can make it the characters appealing and enough that you think, well, I'll go along for the ride, because obviously it matters to them. I can't think why, but so. Yeah. So that was our that really felt like our job and at the same time it really felt important that theater people watch it and think yeah that feels like my world and it doesn't feel that they've dumbed it down or made it um too you know silly it has the intricacy of what i experience when i rehearse so it was quite an interesting challenge that way
2: i i think that's why the show has endured we're coming up on like the 20th anniversary and all of the friends who, for years, were like, "Ebony, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. You have to watch this." It's because of that. Like we feel like everybody watches it, and you feel like it feels real. You know, it doesn't feel um, like a caricature or, or you know, we're um, too sentimental. Yeah, yeah it it just feels way. like real. Mm-hmm. You know, just w- what we what we as theater makers or creatives of any type experience. Mm-hmm.
0: And, like, what it's like, um, this might not make sense, what it's like to uh, do a show. Like, the production at the end of every season always feels like the energy of backstage and the kind of the giddiness and the excitement and the roller coaster of, like, oh, it's working, oh, maybe it's not, and, and all mm-hmm. of the nerves coming together. And yeah. it's such a specific feeling, and it's so addictive. I mean, I feel that if you are a theater person, once you've had that life, it's and the people in this show struggle with that, how to do anything else, mm-hmm. because... The knowledge of um, what life can be when you're doing a show—how mm. exciting it is—and um, there's something about those scenes that it really feels like that.
2: Yeah, Which yeah.
0: It's kind of remarkable because it doesn't always happen through a screen, um, showing like live performance. That's yeah. On TV, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that again, that's kind of a tribute to Peter because he really thought about how to film those scenes in such a way that they felt present and not too. I don't know how he did it because I know exactly what you mean about watching live performances and feeling a bit distanced from it if you're watching it in, on screen. But that's another theme that we were really probably struggling with was, um, <laughs> in our lives I mean, was, was art and life and how to put those two together and h- how do you navigate there's such different worlds and there's a tendency to sort of jettison your life or art or... Or feel like you have to choose between them, so that's kind of one of our themes as well that we were, we were working on personally and also in the work.
0: And yeah. how do you do that? We'd really like to know. <laughs> still on we it. are figuring it out.
1: Still working on it. I don't think there's, as somebody said, this idea of work-life balance is a myth. No. Like there's no balance. It's like con- it's a constant kind of riding the surf of it all. I do think though that it's um it's an Outdated idea to think that they can't be—you can't have both. That's mm-hmm. all. Like, there's a wonderful essay by Sarah Rule about having children. That's just beautiful. About like, children aren't the interruption. If they are the work, they are part of the same
0: thing. Yeah, the
1: mm-hmm. art and the life are part of the same thing. So,
0: mm-hmm. like how you're talking about writing around your kitchen and yeah, talking about your lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. We we, we felt while we were doing it, that it was all kind of one one thing. <laughs> yeah. My children would come in and we'd say, what do you think? Should Anna have an affair? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, man. Um, oh, so we, we also were talking about um, how Anna always felt like, also like the heart um, of the show and seemed to always bring the characters back to center, like um, first season a lot with, you know, Oliver's passing and her having this emotion um, at the beginning. And then it was just like, you know, Richard, like not even pretending it didn't happen, just not having any emotion around the fact that this man just got hit by a frigging truck. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, and then Jeffrey, just not dealing with it to the point where then, you know, Oliver Oliver comes to him and then um just throughout the three seasons she was always reminding people of their humanity. Mm. Um and so we just even though we already talked about like how she's the center sort of logistically, we also wanted to talk a little bit about or get your insights into Anna being the heart and bringing people back to center and their humanity.
1: Mm. Hmm. Hmm. That's so lovely. Well, it's interesting. I mean, when, here's something that I learned from an acting teacher about character is to look for a character's folly. And that, you know, some people might say shadow or, other, you know, the, but I think folly is such a good word. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it can be funny and it can be tragic. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing they don't know about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think we designed these characters somewhat consciously, uh, thinking we could, at least I can, you know, Richard is a man who doesn't know himself, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he makes his mistakes because he doesn't really know who he is. And uh, Jeffrey has his own folly, and so does Ellen. And, um, and each season, we meet characters who, you know, come in who have the same problem in a way. The playwright, yeah, and Crombie, who I just loved. Um, <laughs> and I guess, in a way, is somebody who might not have that folly in the same way. There's something about her that is quite realized, even though she. Often, she probably does too much for others, for sure. Yeah. That's probably the thing that a lot of people can relate to who work in those jobs. Uh, and But it's so fulfilling for her. It's not like she's doing something she doesn't care about. So And um, so I'm, it's hard to talk about... It's hard to talk about her in the same way because I think she she is different from the other characters in a certain way, which she's consciously designed that way. Hmm. She's the civilian who somehow appreciates everybody even when they're being awful. and <laughs> <laughs> Calls them to their better selves in mm-hmm. a way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she absolutely she absolutely does. We'll probably
2: go into that even more when we break down each season. Uh, you're you're thinking
0: I'm just thinking. I mean that's <laughs> just such an interesting I love that I I mean I I love that idea of that's her um function in the piece and I I mean I I really I love Anna I connect very deeply to Anna but I do think of her as a creative as mm-hmm. we've talked about before and I love that um you know I think a lot about uh conflict uh, as a writer and I, I struggle a lot when people are like, your plays need more conflict because mm. I don't write plays where people yell at each other. I think, I think there is conflict in you are different and I am different and we have to work together. And that conflict doesn't need to be like, grr. It needs to be like, how do I understand a person who is outside of myself? Um, and I just think that like, there's so much in Anna that's so beautiful and it's really wonderful to see a character who has positivity and love realized fully. Not as a one dimensional thing, mm-hmm. you know, not as she does have arcs, she has things that happen to her, she is transformed by yeah. the end of the season. Yeah. Totally big she time. Is, yeah. mm-hmm. Um and it's not wrought out of a, a sense of kind of competition or anger or anything like that. Like there is mm-hmm. conflict in positivity. There's conflict in being a good person and how to survive yeah. in the world as that person. So she's not a
1: pushover. She fights mm-hmm. with Richard constantly yeah. to mm-hmm. do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And she fights with Bill Hutt's character at the end. And she yeah. does get to a place where she has to make a choice and, and decide that a line has been crossed. Yeah. And she's done. But she, she I, I agree, perhaps her folly is seeing the best in people, but often that's what brings out the best in people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. She just can't make it happen with Richard ultimately by the end. Yeah yeah she say you came so close you came so close we
2: we talk about that all Uh, like we we can never get over that line like it's so
0: tragic yeah it is tragic yeah yeah do you think that she sees Richard that way from the beginning like do you think that's her change that she initially she thought he could do it yeah I think so I think she's always thinking he's just there just about there just about there
1: I love the scene too, where she's consoling him. He's in the car. He's having fear of success, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. and he doesn't think he deserves the car. She's saying, "You're, yes, you're a bean counter, but you're a good bean counter. <laughs> 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 you're detail oriented, and you
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She's. It's great. Okay, what happened to get them to where we begin um, when the when the show starts? And especially, like, that time between Hamlet and um, when we find him at the little theater, you know, plunging toilets and stuff and tying himself to fences. <laughs> 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 like, wh- what, What? because we heard, like, his mom died. That's Isn't that referenced and, and things like that? So I'm always curious about that. But we also wondered, like, were there other inspirations, like, out you know people that you met of course please don't feel like you need to give names <laughs> give us but the like names.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like experiences and things like that of people and that sort of made up Jeffrey and then I also I'm really curious to also know like is there something that happened to him in between apart from you know his mom dying and we know that he was also in a mental institution for a period of time um that, that brought him to where we find him. So it's like two part question. Right.
1: Those are details I'd forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you we'll give you time. Yeah. Um, so the genesis of the idea of Jeffrey came from the, the w- there's one story, but there are many um, of Daniel Day Lewis walking off stage doing a production of Hamlet, yeah. and having sort of a mental breakdown. And whether the, um, and almost as I recall, I think he thought he saw his own father on stage with him. So whatever was going on in his life, and I don't remember, but I do know of stories, and I've almost felt it myself, when the play just becomes too close to your own life, and that, that boundary dissolves and it's very it's a very bad place for an actor to be Mm. it's very unsafe and it feels and it can be very um, mentally disruptive obviously it is a bit of psychic black magic and it has to be handled carefully uh, as we're now beginning to learn I think like we're getting I think or or relearn because all those rituals that people do before shows there's a reason why we do a ritual it's to keep those worlds separate, and to keep your keep yourself safe psychically. So, so the, that was sort of what was interesting. But also, there was this idea of perfection, the perfect show, the perfect combination, something kind of magical, and everything comes together, and then having the feeling that it's all been a lie in some way because of seeing the manipulation that... Oliver was doing and the, whether he was having an affair with Ellen or whether he slept with her. It was just all, it all came together. And somebody who, I mean, we're all, I think we're all playing with fire anyway, and somebody who's perhaps a little more sensitive, as we all are, it, mm-hmm. it tipped him over the edge, you know. And I think the part about his mother, it's just, it all became too much of a thing. And he walked off stage and he walked out of that, So maybe you might say kind of a false dream in a way, to try and find something that was more true. That's what he was doing. So it goes back to basics by going and starting, as people often do, starting a little theatre company with theatre sans argent, Mm -hmm. with no money. But just to get back to the most basic reason you become an actor, what is it really that we do? It's all about imagination we don't need. And we were setting up the huge contrast between a place that has a ton of money, but has lost its soul. And a place that has no money, but is all about heart and soul. And the fact is, you know, you can't... The fact is, nobody goes to see those plays. So Um, is that really... Is he running away from something? If you're not really performing for people, in a way, you've sort of taken it to the other extreme, in a way. And you're not really testing yourself, in a way. You're, You're hiding, in a way, if that makes sense. So that's where... Jeffrey is when we meet him he's he's still in flight mode let's mm-hmm. say um, he's doing probably I always imagine doing wonderful work there and people are really inspired by it but nobody comes to see it <laughs> 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 and he's fine with that which is perhaps the problem yeah yeah
2: I feel like you're thinking
0: Do you oh no and okay. it's resonating with me <laughs> uh, we went to visit pasmerai the other day which is Pasmarai stands in for Theater yeah. at Saint-Laurent, mm-hmm. Theater Without Money. Um, and I've done shows there, and I know that bathroom well, <laughs> and that <laughs> d- shared dressing room and those couches. And yes. um, I that think the mice thing. are gone. Oh, that'd that be hear. nice. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, and it's it's just, it's so um, resonant. I, and the idea also, I think that there's something really interesting in that I guess we see this with Darren, too. Um, mm-hmm. People kind of think of this is real theater as opposed to to that kind of theater. And um, I, I think the show works so hard to give legitimacy to all kinds. It's even, like, one of the things that I love is, you know, the um, the children's macros version mm-hmm. is treated with yeah. so much respect. And yeah. same with when... Um, Charles is directing at the Old Folk's Home, mm-hmm. um, and, and the corporate workshop that Bob Martin is mm-hmm. in, all these little ways that we do theatre as non-professionals mm. are treated with um, so much kindness, and they're all magical. Like, they're all presented as in, like... I, I mean, the Macros version prompts Jeffrey to kind of have a moment mm. because it's so good, and yeah. there are kids with yeah. streamers. Um, and that just feels like, you know, the magic of theatre coming through so so clearly even though the show is discussing this issue of like you know have you sold your soul are you missing the point by Mm. doing the play this way yeah in this kind of space right which i think is a genuine thing that we all kind of battle with like how do you tell the truth how do you do the show the way it's supposed to be done
1: yeah right and and each time is going to be different based Mm -hmm. on who you have and what's going on in your life and But that you're reaching for this truth which is not perfection but is something rougher and more alive, I think. That's how I see it. And not about, like the Darren character I love is based on somebody that (laughs) we all worked with. (laughs) Oh, Actually, I never worked with him. My friend Martha worked with him and had a really hard time with him. And there's some line in the uh, show about Darren wanting to bring in... uh, a horse on stage, and she said, "You know, he actually did that. You know, I actually, quit. He quit rehearsals no. because they wouldn't let him bring a horse on." I said, "No, that's fantastic." <laughs> <laughs> but he was a guy who who was very, you know, got a big reputation for being for being shocking and kind of like very concept driven, and and so it was a fun target. <laughs> and he was mean too, so that was another thing. What Darren is? Oh. We So he
2: drives me bonkers, but Jess loves him. But I, <laughs> but I think the thing is like I, sometimes when I watch him, I feel like he is a representation of like what we all go through as makers where there comes a point where you've been doing it so long or things haven't been going exactly the way that you hoped they would or something happens that like – breaks the childlike spirit that you had about it and so then you become jaded or angry or embittered and like Darren is at a point where he like hates the theater you know (laughs) And so then he goes to Germany, and he thinks he's come back, and he loves it, but he's still not able to tap. He doesn't want to tap into the emotionality of it, right, that deep connection. And so, you know, then you get in season two with Romeo and Juliet, he's like, don't look at each other, don't touch each other, which just, like, cracks
0: me up every time. (laughs) And they're in the little prison cages, these Romeo and Juliet, as, like, little (laughs) chess pieces in literal cages. (laughs) but he he has he realizes incredibly astutely yeah. like jeffrey does play the trick on him to get him there yeah. but his clarity of i think i was afraid of the play and so i chose to mock that's it right. i was like if a director could say that to me i would respect them like that seems like an incredible amount of self awareness to realize you were doing that i think that's
1: more common than at least that's our take on it is more common than than not that yeah. people are afraid of the play so they Try to be smarter, or try to make fun of it. I, I could. That's the most generous way I can look at some of the productions I've watched. Where I thought, what, why wouldn't you even sort of grapple it with the? Some things are pretty clear about that play. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, is about yeah. love. Um, so yeah, so yeah, and I think we constructed Darren that way too. Is very much like keeping his heart protected and, and uh, using his head to
0: fend off feelings. He feels a lot like, um, in university, I thought things were good if I didn't understand them. Right. You know? Yeah. And, like, I really wanted to do theater that turned everybody off <laughs> so that I could feel <laughs> smarter about it. <laughs> and I think whenever I enjoyed something, I was embarrassed by it. Like, oh, no, no. Like, that's my base self. My real right. self wants to watch, like, a clanging pot yeah. being struck with a, you know, <laughs> spoon for three hours. <laughs> Even though I didn't like that at all. I wanted to, like, yes. watch musicals and see people fall in love. It's mm-hmm. it probably an important stage to go through. I think it is. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that. To expand your taste and yeah, and to reject what you've seen before in order to like find your own way back into it. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I I want to go back a little bit um, to Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> um because we you know, in that in between time, we talked about where Jeffrey was. Um, But, of course, I'm also interested in, like, how Oliver got to this place where now his work is hacky. And we had this conversation and Jess brought up an excellent point. It's like when you lose the person who kind of pushes you to do your best work and then you don't have anybody challenging you, uh, really, then you just, like, are like, well, there's going to be butts in the seats. Like, it'll be fine. And you just are starting to, like, phone things in. Um but it it's interesting because then I think about how there was still a deep love for it. To me that's how I perceive his wanting to have his skeleton left at the theater. Mm-hmm. Um it was like he was unable to on some level connect emotionally anymore with the making of the work, but he still wanted to but there was just something stopping him and so it was like this was his last vestige of I will leave this I still want to be a part of it I can't let it go but I also can't figure out how to be with it does yeah, that make
1: sense it totally makes sense that's really smart um I think I think you're right about the connection with Jeffrey and the, I th- am with Ellen too it's a it's a love story between the three of them they had something really special and they had chemistry and they did their best work with each other and it was it was sort of tragic for Oliver when it broke down through his own fault because he just couldn't stop pushing yeah and whether he was pushing Jeffrey to you know whether he was having this affair in order to push Jeffrey further you know he was that kind of person and director who didn't know where the boundaries were Mm -hmm. and when enough is enough and i think that happens i mean we all know that happens um and then he could never recover from it because he's not a whole person (laughs) he does not have anything outside of the theater and we know people like that too so and i think what happens at those big institutions is you kind of get caught up in the machinery of it Mm -hmm. and it starts to run your life and you don't know how to make a change. Uh, um, That's the problem with institutions, I think. Uh, And anybody, uh, Richard Eyre has a number of wonderful books about uh, running the National Theatre, which I highly recommend. And he talks about that. It's just constant, constant, constant stress and strain of running a theatre and having to program. And it sort of can kill your creative impulses. So I think that's where we find Oliver at the beginning is... Uh, going through the motions. Some part of him is really broken, and he can't can't get out of it. So, yeah. so, th- so I think we wanted to have I mean tremendous compassion for that as well. Like, yeah. That uh, and he was, I think, for Jeffrey too. Probably he's never felt that he had a mentor like Oliver. And I've had those people in my life. And and you're always you. You're sort of always trying to prove yourself against them and test them and you're still arguing with them. And then I've also had these mentors now who've died and I'm like, You can't go. I'm still having an argument with you. <laughs> I still need to, you know, so you're still having those arguments in your head about
0: things you still don't agree on, you know, <laughs> or that you want his take on, you know. So And was that the genesis of the ghost or I mean, yeah. I love I love a ghost. I always love a ghost. It feels very theatrical yeah, and very well, Shakespearean. It's
1: partly that it's we were always every year reflecting uh, back the themes of the play into the lives of the character. Mm-hmm. and so it was partly wanting to have a ghost character. And then it was partly knowing that um, we were telling the story about about somebody who still has something to prove. Mm-hmm is still in dialogue with the past and you know who's being called to revenge (laughs) or to redeem something so i think it probably all came out of the themes we were looking at in terms of uh the play and again our own lives and and there's a there's ghosts all through
0: Yeah, there's <laughs> magic ghosts yeah, there's and yeah. Julius Caesar ghosts yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. lots of different...
1: And the rights. ghost in a the theatre, um, it's always fascinated me. Uh, on our last day at theatre school, we I went to the National Theatre School and we put on a play in the historic Monument National there, which is this really creepy old building <laughs> and always felt haunted because it it's, was back in the... Mid 19th century, probably late 19th century, it was built and it was crumbling. And and on our last day, our last performance, I think of Winter's Tale, we fully heard a ghost like moaning somewhere. <laughs> it was like everybody hears that, right? Like it was really wild. And I think there's something about ghosts and theaters. Like the problem with new theaters is they don't have ghosts yet. Yeah. They're too new. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But once they've been around for a while, they sort of arise out of all the emotions and imaginary conjurings that have been in that building and then you start to become a real theater
2: hmm. I I also I love too that we don't we always wonder is this just in Jeffrey's head or is he actually a ghost you know until until the end was it always the plan for us to be not quite sure
1: completely mm-hmm. I, I know we sort of we pushed it a little bit in the final season, but again, that's that kind of thing as well. It's not literally true, but it is emotionally absolutely true that there's a ghost there and that and that other people who are in that liminal place can see him. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. Somebody passing over can now see Oliver. But it, it, I, I think it was fun to keep it in that is it or isn't it space because it's more interesting that.
0: And it's very theater. It's real and not real, right? Yeah, it's
1: the real and not real of theater has always been fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk more about it? What
0: it means to well, you or how well, you see it
1: somehow? I, w- um, I will tell you that this sort of goes back to childhood because um, I wrote a book about a story that happened to me when I was five, when I had this magical neighbor, an older man, like in his 70s who had been a retired school teacher and and when i was 5 i used to hang out with him all the time in his garden his wife was sick so he had time and and he used to read me alice in wonderland we played chess together and we'd work on the, in the garden and he was a magical person and that summer i found an old fireplace between our two houses and and uh, I had been reading about fairies, and I said I'd seen a fairy there. And then every day that summer, he wrote me a letter from a fairy named Nutzita, who was an Inca princess, and she'd been banished from her home because she was too proud. She was this wonderful character he'd created. And she wrote me letters about fairies, and mostly the fairies in Shakespeare, because she was living with her uncle Oberon and her aunt Queen Mab. And her best friend was Puck, and they, he wrote these beautiful literary letters to me, a five-year-old, about all these characters who were very real to me. Mm. And people always say, "When did you realize that it, that there wasn't really a fairy there?" And I always say, uh, never," because it just sort of it just sort of moves into another kind of reality. And with my own kids, I saw the same thing. They had imaginary friends who were real but not real. Mm. And I thought, that's exactly what we do. We, we know it's not real, but it's also real. And it's mm-hmm. also there's also a truth to it. And it can look ridiculous. But we also know how... I remember my daughter reading Harry Potter and crying for an hour at the death of one of the characters. And I'm, I couldn't really say, oh, don't worry, it's not real. It's Sometimes the most real thing are these imaginary connections we have because they're important and they're they're taking us somewhere that our th- just our thinking can't take us so it's right, hmm. a long-winded way of saying that the real and the not real is has always been very interesting to me and i think it doesn't we don't really know how to talk about it well except in art i guess right we know it when we feel it, and we walk out of a play, and we still can't talk because it was too upsetting. And so, but it's just you. Somebody who doesn't have that makeup could say, "I don't understand why you're upset. It was just a story, you know." Yeah. But it was real, and it can change you to have those experiences. So. Yeah, I, uh,
2: it just popped in my head thinking about a musical that I left several years ago, and I had seen it already, but I was able to take a friend who just one of the kindest people gave up his ticket for someone else before so i took him and after it he was like i I'd, I'd have to walk home i have to process <laughs> I have to walk i can't be around other people right now and i was like i get it uh-huh. i absolutely get it um but other people that we were with were like I don't, what are you
0: doing mm. the, so yeah right right <laughs> there's also something in um Maybe, like, it's very difficult to name. It is so hard to talk about in real life and a lot of people really don't want to engage with it or maybe can't. Maybe it's that thing that it is a portal to another world and and you don't always know what's on the other side and so it's dangerous to even open it. But there's something about... um, I'm really moved in season two by her story about uh, how her story is kind of taken from her in a way that doesn't feel completely generous Mm -hmm. or completely fair Uh, even though as a writer I definitely do things like that and I'm always kind of going, oh, that's great, thank you. Um, And, you know, the ethics of that are complicated. But there's something about seeing herself or seeing a version, you know, this corrupted version that he's written of her on stage that allows her to see herself. Mm. And in the same way, maybe there's something about we deal with these kind of spirits, these things that we can't reconcile or name in real life and then we put them on stage and it allows us a way to kind of talk about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yes, yeah. It makes
1: complete sense. Yeah. It's, it's imaginations meeting imaginations and sort of coming up with something transformative. that That is, you know, where we really live. In a way. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, um, is it okay if we go to three? Yeah, sure. You want to? Okay. So, all right. I, so I start like I said. I'm super late to the slings and arrows party. Started in March, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also feel that this was the best time to start. And season three is why it's it's my favorite um, because of how it deals with the passing of somebody beloved. And for Jeffrey, for all intensive purposes, this is kind of like his fa- like another father figure, and so. He already lost Oliver, and so now he's also losing Charles. And I have lost both of my parents, and so when I was watching it and I saw just everything Jeffrey and Charles were going through, I was really connecting with it. And then the turn when when Anna comes to help Jeffrey to navigate the process and try to, like, get as, you know – try to help this man realize his final dream is just so beautiful and so moving to me that whole season every time you know Charles is thrown into one of the most terribly vulnerable situations um, and Jeffrey is witness to it it still doesn't crumble how much he admires and, and loves this man. And I just, the care with which that season is written is so touching to me. So I just wanted to ask, you know, um, were there experiences that you had that informed that season? Um, were there experiences, you know, that you all had together that informed that that season also? um that choice to have Anna be the person to help lead Jeffrey through the process of trying to help, you know, his other father figure, um, be comfortable. I just, I have questions about that.
1: Well, again, um, again, I think we started with the themes of the play Mm -hmm. and we knew it had to be Lear partly because we knew it was the end of the trilogy and, we wanted to get to somewhere like. I do remember at one point. Neve saying, "Does Oliver have to disappear? What if we want to do a fourth season?" And we're like, "Well, he does. Mm-hmm. It has to be an end of something. Yeah. You have to wrap things up. It's a it's a play about the end of things, and it is about you know it's also there's also transformation and release and um, so the themes of madness and. And um, a guy who's a really unpleasant person. I, mm-hmm. I love, uh, and we, uh, a number of us have actually been in Lear with William Hutt, who played oh, wow. <laughs> Charles <laughs> Kingman, including uh, I think Paul uh, knew him well as well. So, and we really wanted him to be our Lear too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he has had that storied career here in Canada, he spent his whole life at the Stratford Festival, I don't remember, he was almost from the very beginning of the festival. So there were a number of things like that that were in our head. But I think also to come full circle on the first season is this, this matters to do this, even if only 20 people see this. If we have to do it in a church basement, we know now It matters. It matters. Uh, somehow, yeah. Who knows why? Um. So the way that it moves, you know, the way it moves from a palace to the heath to you know, is the way to a hovel. <laughs> That's kind of where we're moving in the third season, from the main stage to the second stage to a church basement. And That's so good. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and oh, I love the minister who who, who tries to uh, do therapy with <laughs> Oliver and Jeffrey. Um, because, it, because he has to be a minister, because it's about, you know, we're sort of, you know, religion and theater have something in common, actually. Um, so I guess a lot of it was about thinking about, and as I've said, those mentors that I've lost that were working till the end. Mm-hmm. And... That was the lifeblood. So what is that about the dignity of of doing what you do until the very end, I guess? Yeah. So there were a lot a lot of things that as I'm trying to recall, again, those long conversations around our table, that, that came together in terms of who this character was and his and the meaning of this. And Jeffrey finds a meaning for his work that's actually outside of his own ego in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the, the importance of it is we're doing this for Charles now. Uh, and it's not because he's a nice person. <laughs> it's because he deserves this, you know. It's funny, you know, there's actually, believe it or not, a book of academic essays that are about to come out about slings and arrows. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird and there's like (laughs) there's two essays on hauntology in slings and arrows i'm like is that a thing (laughs) (laughs) and somebody was saying the person who's putting it together said would you write it differently like i mean he's sort of a jerk isn't he and and we're like yeah there's lear (laughs) you know like that's that's the point of him like Mm -hmm. it's the complication of working with talented people who can be really difficult sometimes and at what point it's always a question. At what point do you say that's too much, and what point do you say, oh, let's figure it out? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very much in the thick of this conversation right now. Yes, yeah, I understand that, and I think it's an. We, imp- I think, probably need to have this conversation, but I think we also need to get to the point where, like, we need to be able to talk through difficult things too. Yeah. I think so. Um, I
2: also wondered when you know, people get a diagnosis like what Charles had, sometimes the anger also, um, they become angry about what's happening to them. And so was that also what was part of Charles's anger was, you know, he he knew he'd had a good life, he'd liked his life, he'd liked his career, but he still seemed to feel like he had more stories to tell. And so um, did, was that also, do you think? In
1: well, I would say, yes, a person like Charles has lived his whole life in the theater and probably thought he was never going to die. <laughs> I mean, we all do. But, I mean, there's someone who lived his whole life for the theater, that character, and, uh, and was kind of a tyrant, yeah. a bully. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked and he had high standards you know um, and he made people miserable <laughs> and now suddenly like Lear he's experiencing mortality he's experiencing his humanity and it's it's pissing him off it pisses Lear off too until he gets down to the real true nub of his his mortality which makes him human again mm-hmm. and, and breaks our heart because he, he gets there in the end he loses everything and he gets his soul get back. So yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I think that's true.
2: Thank you for listening to part one of the Susan Coyne interview. Stay tuned for part two.